the bane of neuroscience has been that most methods record from the cell body. And so I think we're all somatocentric, I like to say, mm. which means that we all think that the spike at the cell body is somehow more meaningful than anything else that happens in the neuron. And I think from a computational point of view, it's the least interesting part of the <laughs> neuron. The question is, if having just seen a movie and somebody recorded all your action potentials, if they replayed all the action potentials very faithfully at every neuron in your brain, would you have the experience of seeing the movie again? This is Brain Inspired. Welcome to Brain Inspired. I'm Paul. Are dendrites conceptually useful? That's the title of a recent perspective piece from Matthew Larkham, whose voice you just heard. Matthew runs his lab at Humboldt University of Berlin, where his group studies how dendrites contribute to computations within and across layers of the neocortex. Over the past few years, Matthew has published many theoretical proposals and many experimental results that argue for a better appreciation of the role of dendrites in our cognition, like perception, memory, consciousness. All of these ideas fall out from the unique structure of pyramidal neurons in our cortex. Pyramidal neurons are the majority of the neurons in our cortex, and although we name them by where their cell bodies are in the cortical layers, like layer 5 pyramidal neurons or layer 2-3 pyramidal neurons, Matthew argues it's more useful to consider which layers their dendrites occupy because their dendritic trees stretch out in different directions to receive incoming signals from different areas of the brain. For example, layer 5 pyramidal neurons have a set of dendrites at their base, which receives mostly feed-forward projections from earlier brain areas, and by earlier I mean closer to sensory areas, so as early visual cortex projects forward, those projections land on the basal dendrites of the later area. Those same layer 5 pyramidal neurons have dendrites that project up into layer 1 of the cortex, called apical dendrites, and those dendrites largely receive feedback projections from later brain areas. That's simplistic, of course, because there are other lateral projections and connections across layers of the cortex and so on. But the story remains that these two sets of dendrites from the same neuron are receiving signals from fundamentally different brain areas. One of Matthew's early key findings was that these two sets of dendrites are electrically separated, and depending on what's receiving signals at any given time, the neuron will either be silent, if only the apical dendrites are receiving signal, or will fire at low levels if only the basal dendrites are receiving signal, or fire in a bursting mode if both are simultaneously receiving signal. This led Matthew to realize this coincidence detection type mechanism makes for a great way to associate feedforward sensory-like information with feedback, memory, or context-like information, and might therefore be a fundamental principle of how the cortex operates, a big question in neuroscience. So we discuss uh, a handful of the ideas and experiments that uh, fall out from that, like I said, related to learning and memory and consciousness and more. We also discuss how Matthew's work has made him appreciate 
how a bottom-up approach, or examining the implementation level in terms of Mars' famous levels of analysis, can inform what algorithms and computations might be possible, as opposed to starting with the computation and figuring out how it must work in the brain. We talk about how the principles derived from dendritic computation might improve deep learning. You may remember many episodes ago, uh, I had Blake Richards on, uh, that was episode 9, and Blake used Matthew's work as inspiration for his neural network models to solve backpropagation in the brain, for example. And toward the end, we discuss a recent thought experiment Matthew and a couple of colleagues offered, asking whether action potentials, or more broadly brain activities, cause consciousness. Oh, and there are a few guest questions from Max Shine, a previous guest on episode 121. Okay, sorry for the long intro, but I thought it would be useful to set up the background a little, uh, even though we cover it in more detail in the episode. Find links to Matthew's lab and the papers we discuss in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 138. If you find value in this podcast, consider supporting it for just a few bucks through Patreon. Or if you want to dive deeper and learn more about the conceptual foundations of a lot of what's discussed on the Brain Inspired podcast, consider taking my NeuroAI course, which you can learn more about at braininspired.co. All right, here's to the dendrite, and enjoy Matthew. Matthew, pleasure to have you on. Thanks for being here. It's wonderful to be here. I've really enjoyed the podcast. It's been, for me, a revelation. My, my PhD student put me onto it, I think, around about the time you interviewed Yorgi Bujaki. And oh. since then, I've, I've, I've just faithfully listened to it nearly every week. Oh, that's so funny that... For uh, me, it's a fantastic thing. Oh, well, thanks for saying that. It's funny that um, I, I hear that quite often that someone's PhD student put them onto it, <laughs> just as you said. So I guess it's working in that respect. What, I was trying to figure out how to describe what it is that you do. And one way to describe that would be that you are wreaking havoc on the notion uh, the uh, the primacy of the neuron cell body and the action potentials produced there and, and championing the role of dendrites. Uh, that's a very simplistic way to say it, but h- how would you say it? Oh, I, I'm glad you put it like that, actually, because... I would like that message to come across. Um, I don't know where to start in, in, in the trajectory of explaining why, why, or how you could come to that, to that opinion. Well, from a historical point of view, from a methodological point of view, I think that the bane of neuroscience has been that most methods record from the cell body. And so if you think of like a extracellular recording, it'll pick up spikes that are near the tip of the electrode and, if you do it, obviously, if you do a targeted whole cell patch recording or, or even a, 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 a juxtacellular patch, or, or if you, if you use other methods like calcium imaging, which is now one of the main methods in neuroscience, they all are much better at picking up signals from cell bodies. And, and so I think we're all somatocentric, I like to say, mm. which means that we all think that the spike at the cell body is somehow more meaningful than anything else that happens in the neuron. And I think from a computational point of view, it's the least interesting part of the <laughs> neuron. And I think that, I mean, if you would that do this exercise, if you would take, uh, if you would collapse all of the branch points in a neuron, including the cell body, and you'd make them all just tiny nodes, right? So that, so there's no big sack of, of lipid, which represents the cell body anymore, but, but just little junctions. Where things, uh, where things meet, 
obviously now your electrodes would not think the cell body is special in any way. Mm. Uh, the, the axon is where you could say the output is, and it's also where the output is generated, um, which happens to come out of the somatic node, but who'd know that if it was as small as every other junction point in the, in the neuron? And now you would be saying that this entity, the, the collapsed neuron, would be transforming inputs that come everywhere, more or less everywhere else but the cell body, not, not completely, but, but to a first approximation, and transforms it in the axon to outputs that also go all over the place. You'd never mention the cell body, and, and, and yet this is the place that is central to, to describing a neuron and to describing the computations that neurons make. So I think in the first instance, it's, it's almost irrelevant. Well, I know that uh, I, I've heard you talk about how Ramonica Hall um, appreciated the role of, or, well, the the potential role of dendrites, uh, and in in his beautiful drawings, you know, it's interesting. I I don't know if in neuroscience it's still taught um, with the sort of cell body as the primary focus, but when you look at his drawings, you know, of course there are all these different beautiful structures of dendrites and axons and. Um, you, you've quoted him in um, some of his work, appreciating and and mm. sort of speculating that there might be uh, a computational kind of role for those dendrites. So, do you know is is it still taught that? Uh, I don't know if you teach neuroscience. Uh, to I do. I do. Yeah. Well, though I know that I'm sure the way the way that you teach uh, sort of diminishes the role of the cell body, but I guess writ large <laughs> in textbooks, it's still uh, somatocentric, as you said. That's right. I start with the when I'm when I get to the subject, um, I start with a slide showing about ten different pictures from textbooks, and and they typically almost all of them have a, a, a sizable cell body, looks like an orange or something, and it's got little tiny little sort of hairs coming out of it, uh, which are the dendrites, but they're really de-emphasized. And then if you're lucky, it's got one myelinated axon coming out and then and then a sort of hand structure at the end which represents what could be the processes of the axon and and basically the dendrites you could forget them if you mm. didn't look carefully at in in the textbook and yeah i i guess i i i complain usually in in, in my lecture that that this is my favorite subject and the dendrites are missing but there's usually a few titles and then we get on with just describing the way you have to basically uh, the way a neuron operates at, at if at least if we're talking about basic neuroscience if i get high level course then i, I get the chance then to mm. to do all my uh, propaganda on on what i think the neurons are really doing so you're just disgruntled for a few moments there and then move on huh <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Uh, we were talking before I hit record that the the arc of the story of your research is is quite long, and I'm afraid that we're not going to be able to get to a lot of the things. Maybe we could start. Um, I'd like to start before 1999, but uh, a lot of the at, when you start, uh, often I think that you send people the 1999 paper in which you're recording, mm -hmm. uh, you know, apical dendrites and uh, from the basal dendrites as well. Uh, so maybe we could start just what the dendrite hypothesis is, and then I would love to hear mm -hmm. how you came about searching for these sorts of questions, doing these experiments, and asking these questions. You know, I think it's going to work better the other way around, because the, the only way the dendrite hypothesis makes sense, in my mind, is to is to step back and, and look at the cortex the way cortex. I came mm -hmm. to look 
Yes, right. <laughs> the way I came to look at the cortex, um, first of all, actually, in the end, it's it's um, we we I think more recently, at least in my lab, exploring the way the cortex interacts with subcortical structures, and and so it's perhaps a bit rash to to just say cortex, but nevertheless, I think it's quintessentially a, a hypothesis about the cortex. Is that how you began thinking about it, or? Is that where the the recordings and experiments came from? Is thinking about cortex and the the multilayered structure, et cetera? Right, absolutely. Um, so I found myself in a in a laboratory. It was Bert Sackmann's laboratory in Heidelberg, uh, of, uh, which I arrived at in 1997 as a as my first postdoc. And so this is the the guy who's invented patch clamp and uh, won the yeah. Nobel Prize for it. And uh, and by that point, the uh, the lab was humming with with they'd had a, a, almost a decade at this point of of fabulous findings on on after being able to patch dendrites for the first time at the same time that they could record from the cell body. So so basically, do the first experiments into how signals were generated in the dendrites and how they they propagated around the neurons um so i came into uh, sort of a second generation of researchers looking at this after the first amazing revolutionary experiments that have been done and and back then we we took slices of cortex from from rats mm-hmm. and so my first confrontation with the whole thing was to look at the cortex side on in the dish, as it were, under a high-powered microscope, and and what you see in that situation is mostly pyramidal neurons, and and if you've done a nice preparation, you see their dendrites quite nicely, and mm-hmm. uh, and so what you're effectively looking at is a forest which of tall trees, and uh, and where the where the the cell bodies have roots going down um and the and they all oriented the same way like a forest and and then there are tough dendrites at the top and i don't think you can look at that structure and not ask why the hell is the cortex made of these really p- peculiar but specialized neurons um and i think it's natural to uh, and kahal as you mentioned also did the same thing he looked at these neurons and said well there's got to be something special about these neurons but by then we were finding out that not only were they morphologically special, but but physiologically or biophysically. So they have a whole complement of specialized channels that are distributed in specialized ways that make this a a much more complex machine than the sort of neurons you find to this day in either models of the cortex or models or artificial neural networks and so on. So they're just obviously on their face much more complex but of course you don't know a priori what what this complexity serves and 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 uh, and what it's doing so so when i got to the lab the, the the talk of the town was the latest recordings and publications of Jackie Schiller and Greg Stewart that had shown that there was not just a spike in the axon but there there was a a, a special dendritic spike um, we subsequently found there were more than one type, but at the time there was a so-called calcium spike, or sometimes called a cat- calcium plateau potential, in the right at the top of this tree. If you can think of it like a big oak tree or something, that, that, mm-hmm. or uh, there's right at the well, of, just before the branching out into the tufts, the there's a there's another 
zone, an initiation zone for an incredible spike that's more like the spike you get in heart muscle. And it's actually due to the same channels. It's, it's the long lasting calcium channels that sustain a plateau, uh, in this dendrite. So it's altogether more amazing and incredible than, uh, than the spike that we all know and love that comes out of the, <laughs> the axon, the, the so-called sodium spike. And, uh, and at the time, People, uh, in particular, Sackman, I think, was the, so, so the, the boss, as it were, um, was skeptical about whether or not the, the calcium spike would be of any use because it had a high threshold and, and there, it was difficult to imagine what would actually make it fire. And so it, it, there was, it wasn't completely clear whether it was, it was just an artifact or an anecdotal, byproduct, as you, if you like. Yeah, yeah byproduct, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I remember I was trying to explain to my wife, who, as, as I say, is a musician and it sort of takes some time to get through these, these nutty <laughs> details. Of the, um, and, and I had to explain to her, uh, on a long walk once, um, what, what I was doing and, and what the point of this calcium spike was. And, and, uh, and it, at the other point that had been discovered just before that was that the, this sodium spike that everyone knew went down the axon and signaled the next neuron also went back up the up the big trunk of the tree, and also a byproduct, right? That's the idea. Maybe yes, yeah. yes, right. Um, and and people were speculating what the good of that was, and so it all hit me in an instant that it, it could be that the 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 signal that's generated at the bottom of the tree basically primes the top of the tree such that you can reach threshold for inputs coming into the effectively the leaves at the top the the, that, the the dendritic tufts that idea just came to you in a in a of a sudden in, in, yes yes it was a, it was a wow. sort of eureka moment on a sunday as we were walking through the forest in heidelberg and, and i i by monday afternoon i had the first result which was that indeed this is the case and and it's even more exciting that because the what it does is halve the threshold for that for the the, the big plateau potential, the calcium spike in the dendrites. And that in itself leads to a kind of ping-pong exchange between the top of the neuron and the bottom of the neuron that causes it to burst fire. And, and so the, effectively you can, you can arrange it such that innocuous inputs that appear to be doing nothing on their own make the whole neuron explode. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden, I think it was clear to me that this was an associative uh, device. The, the, the neuron was basically associating whatever came to the top and the bottom of the neuron. So mm-hmm. the next question was, what goes to the top and the bottom of the neuron? Right. Um, and to some extent, we're still trying to work that out. But I think in broad strokes, the, uh, to a first approximation, you can say that the top of the neuron receives a lot of long range input that's, that's predominantly feedback in, in, in some hierarchical sense, meaning that that the uh, if you if you got something coming from a a higher let's say you said secondary um, visual cortex or seminocentric cortex going to primary cortex it'll it'll target the top of the of the cortex and higher order thalamus targets the top of the cortex um, and lots of superior colliculus targets the top of the cortex as we've now subsequently learned that lots of memory structures target the top of the cortex um, and and in the in the event that you, if you saw that architecture in the first instance without knowing about this physiological property, you'd have to wonder what the hell it's doing going to the top of this tree 
particularly when you do the actual electrical recordings and you find that it has no influence at the cell body. It's, it's basically a flat line. If you, if you put in input at the top of the tree, there's basically nothing to see at the bottom of the, of the neuron. And, but, and that's and because yet, of the, the, it's electrically decoupled essentially because of the long, uh, dendritic tree structure. That's right. That's right. I mean, this word decouple comes into the picture right in the most recent stories that we've had because it seems that the, it turns out, and this is jumping right to the end now, that, that the, the brain has a handy little switch to, to couple the top to the bottom of the neuron. And that, that means that it's possible, it, given that, oh, I should have, I should have completed the story and said that it's, we think the bottom is receiving predominantly feed forward, although, um, let's just, let's just leave it in simplistic terms for the moment. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's complexity in everything and, and, and exceptions to everything. No. But, but it, to a first, to a first approximation, you've got, you've got a feed forward drive to the bottom and, and feed back to the top. Um, and, and if you would, if you, if you would have the neuron decoupled, uh, such that the top can't influence the bottom, then you've basically taken feedback out of the system with one fell swoop. And, and that's what the cortex has as a handy switch. Um, and, and something that would be fantastic to try out in a model. Um, and, uh, and I guess it's too early at this point because that's a fairly recent discovery. But in, in the dish, so in vitro, they tend to be decoupled. And when you put them in a, in, in vivo in the awake state with neuromodulation and so on, they tend to be coupled. But coupled here is, so the way the, this term coupled is, is going to be confusing at this point of the story because the, it's still the case that the, that the bottoms can signal the top and cause a kind of, uh, mm. um, cooperative interaction between the two, the two regions. And that I think is still a fundamental way of explaining what the purpose of the cortex is and what it does, which may sound like a bold claim, but I, I'd have to, Deconstruct that that claim to to try to convince anyone that that's the case. But now I'm I'm completely convinced at this point that that the key to understanding the cortex is understanding this neuron and the and the architecture of long range connectivity. But so the, this neuron is a layer five pyramidal neuron, and the cortex is made up of multiple layers. Why why this neuron? Because there are other layers that, of course, you know, um, stretch out um, among other layers in the column, stretch their dendrites and axons out, and of course, have lateral connections. So so why why the specific? Because I know that you're also looking at layer two, three um, pyramidal yeah. neurons, which also have that kind of structure. But the but why the layer five? Yeah, I'm, I, so I would, in the first instance, I'd say it's the pyramidal neuronal type that should be used with this description. They, they're all subtly different from each other. Um, the main point being what we call the layer five neuron is the neuron with the cell body in the soma, which by the way is as if, if my claim is right that the cell body is not relevant, then there's nothing layer five about this neuron in particular. But, um, no, let's, let's, let's pause there because you kind of reformulate that. That's, the, that's kind of the way that we think of traditionally the cortex or the way I was taught is, um, in layer five, there are the cell bodies of the pyramidal neurons, but, you're, you're kind of reformulating a, a, a perspective on how to think about the cortex because all of the action taking place is essentially outside of the layer. Well, a lot of it is outside of the layer in which the cell body exists. 
So that's right. Yeah. Maybe I don't know. Can you elaborate on how how your perspective on the cortex differs then? Sure. So so I mean I, I think in in terms of describing what a neuron does, I think the easiest thing to say is that it's transforming inputs into outputs. Um, that's probably maybe too boring. But but if that's the case, then you have to look at where the inputs are and where the outputs are. Um, and maybe you, the, the last thing you want to ask is where is where where is the transformation happening, and which could be everywhere. Um, I'm claiming that the last place you want to look is the cell body for this transformation. But but um, but in principle, the transformation starts where the in, where the inputs arrive and and involves the entire neuron in terms of because signals are going up and down, back and forth, and uh, and causing different kinds of signals in different places um, in a very, very complex way, and none of which has anything really to do with where the cell body happens to be. And then in the end, the axon itself typically goes all over the place, um, and and you can't you can't easily predict where the, which layer or even whether or not the the output remains in the cortex. So so actually there's no there's no particular layer that this element the neuron is is confined to if you well okay so so if you if you ask yourself what is the um what is the function of this neuron you're going to have to essentially find out what are all of the interactions that can occur within the dendritic tree um mostly within the dendritic tree in principle there's some things that could happen in the axon and then you're going to have to uh, describe this in terms of the long range. So where, where the inputs to the cortex arrive and, and what they represent, what kinds of, um, what classes of information this represents. You know, I, I realize we're, we're talking about, um, on a smaller scale than what, when, when people usually formulate hypotheses about what the cortex is doing, right? They talk about the cortical column and as if it's a unit, uh, operation. Um, mm-hmm. and then there are different, you know, high level theories about what each column is doing. And then that's repeated, uh, over all of the different columns essentially, and just specialized based on where the column is. Um, so is your idea about, it's less about the cortical column so much, or maybe you can correct me. Um, I'm trying to think of like how, how your ideas fit within the, you know, higher theories of, of cortex, so to speak. Yeah, because we're talking about a very specific kind of cell structure and the way yeah. that it is decoupled and or coupled depending on which kinds of inputs. And I'm kind of jumping the gun here. I know, but I think it fits well into the view of the cortexes, uh, the sort of Mountcastle view that that there are lots of vertically oriented columns that basically uh, are all, dare I say, feature. Um, encoders or, or, or detectors, um, and very much with a, a kind of hierarchical view of that, such that some of these, some of these cortical columns are receiving more primary information. That means in the stream of information from the outside world to the inside world, they're early on. And then there are other cortical columns that are higher up in that hierarchy, meaning further along the processing line. And then and then with lots of information going in the other direction. And, and so in that scheme of things, if we just stick to primary sensory cortex for a minute, then you would be claiming that 
any given that the role of the pyramidal neurons in this sense first of all the the, the layer five pyramidal neuron is the only neuron that spans all of the layers so it collects input from all of the layers and it's the only neuron that goes completely out of the cortex uh, with the exception of some layer six that also go to the thalamus but the layer five is is an output neuron in the sense that it's projecting both within the cortex long range but also outside the cortex very long range they're the neurons for instance that would that would go to your spinal cord and and directly um, sign up onto motor neurons so that there there's some kind of uh, encapsulation if you like of what the column is doing We'd, you'd like to think anyway um, it's hard to imagine that that that's not the case and and so one I, I presume that the circuit of a column at a minimum is serving to uh, encapsulate some feature that's that's uh, either in sensory space or in at high levels are are some more complex features and that that if you would record from the layer 5 neuron you'll have the best idea of what of what what the brain or cortex currently thinks is is a feature in in cognitive space let's say um and and in that world if that's if that's a good way of of looking at the cortex i think there are two categorically two kinds of information at least that and and two really important types of information one would be the feed forward stream which would represent the information coming from the external world and one would be the feedback stream which would represent information that's been generated in the cortex itself um, and and it would make sense of why you want to have neurons where which are elongated and have a large collecting a large set of dendrites collecting inputs at both ends um, and essentially at least two compartments two you can imagine two boxes or or, or two neurons in fact at both ends and uh, and that one is predominantly collecting one kind of information and the other is predominantly connecting collecting the other kind of information and in fact since since these are very difficult words to use feedback forward feed forward or top down mm. bottom up and and typically the, the, this is the stumbling block for many conversations the, you could just take the attitude why not talk about a basal and an apical apical being the description of the top of this neuron and and basal being the bottom of the neuron and then we could worry about Mm. What what terms we want to use later on for this? But essentially, you could say this neuron is allowing you first of all to separate those two streams of information, and then bring them together in special ways under special conditions, and and have a a way to to manipulate those conditions and the way the way you combine them. Well, yeah, I, I was going to ask because it's it's kind of easy to wrap your head around it when you're talking about let's say early visual cortex, right, and where you're having most purely sensory data coming in and you're looking at a you know features of a tiger or something yeah i think you often use a tiger in your mm. uh, examples mm. and then in the in the so that's coming into the basal uh, dendrites and then all these and and um, again i'm jumping the gun but these we're i'm going to say feedback um connections coming into the uh, apical dendrites which are, you know, memories of tigers and uh, models that the brain has built, et cetera. Context is uh, what you refer to. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of easy to think about it like that. But then as soon as you go up uh, another hierarchical layer, that feed forward information is not sensory anymore, or it's mm -hmm. less mm -hmm. sensory. 
but now it is it's still feed forward right but then it's with it's it's like the sensory information that's been transformed uh by the context and memories and we'll talk maybe about mm-hmm. memories in a little bit so then it's like you said if those are tricky terms feed forward and feedback but all of a sudden you're already in a very kind of complex uh model <laughs> as opposed to yeah. like the simple sensory versus feedback um story i agree but i think that's the beauty of it i mean I, the the point would be that what is context for one region could be data for the next and 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 vice versa and and this will depend on where you are in the in the processing but but it could easily be that the the that that means that this is loops upon loops in some sense and that mm-hmm. you although it, it although there would be a way to describe let's say a, a direction of flow of information in the end this is all going to be very much um this is going to get very complicated very soon in terms of how you would describe what any given column that's not at the top or the bottom is actually doing. I think the other thing that, that maybe is occurring to you and occurs to most people is that um, what happens at the top, because it turns out that the other thing to say, which I should have started with really, is that the, the, the whole cortex is full of these neurons. They're, they're ubiquitously everywhere. Um, and they're not in other structures. They're like 70 to 80% of the cortex. And you don't find them elsewhere. So, so there's something special about this neuron for sure. And, and they're ubiquitous throughout the cortex and you find them at the top of the so-called hierarchy just as much as you find them at the bottom. And, and with this simplistic way of describing it in terms of feed forward feedback, you know, what's, what's feeding back to the apical tufts of neurons at the top of this hierarchy you might ask right um, oh i just i just drew i was drawing this out and i and i have a big question mark right there in my <laughs> diagram <laughs> right that's i so in i think when we get to this point um you want to that's where i think the words fail us and where the where the language is really just a hindrance mm. I, I what i'd rather say is that we've got a that the cortical column is is as architecturally speaking at least from the point of the neurons and the you know, the, the, the six layers and, and so on is more or less the same in, at the top of the hierarchy as it is at the bottom of the hierarchy. And, and I presume, well, we know that the properties of these neurons are, if not identical, roughly the same. And, and so we do know that inputs coming to the top of neurons in prefrontal cortex, uh, is doing roughly the same as, as inputs to the top of neurons in sensory cortex. So uh, that's where I say it'd probably be better to reframe what a cortical column does for it with it, with respect to the top and the bottom of these neurons, mm. uh, which ends up being particular layers, rather than rather than trying to find an English word to describe the, this the information categorically such that it's always the same. There's probably a good German word for it, no? <laughs> probably, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, well, actually, when it comes to these words, I think they're. Uh, they use the English. I'm just trying to think whether, uh, whether there's a specialized German word for, for feedback and feed forward. That, don't they just stick words together? And yes, to, they do. Yes. So some, yeah. 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 We could probably, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. In any case, the, the, um, I, I think the fact that it's, um, that it's the same everywhere is in a sense the guiding principle for, for claiming that, 
that there's something special about this neuron, about what it's actually doing um, in the first place. And then, then you can ask yourself, well, I mean, essentially what the, the word you brought up the word context, which is the best word I think one can find for as a best English word, I think, to describe what might be coming to the top. In other words, if you imagine that the, that the output of this neuron is, is encoding some either low level or high level feature, that a feature is, is everything that you're trying to in, it's encapsulate and propagate. And, and context is everything other than that that relates to it. So when, when, if you're talking about the tiger, for instance, which is what I always go back to, um, then, then if you're talking about the color orange, you might want to associate, so you're the, you're the orange column, let's say, and, or let's say you're talking about the neuron that is, that is giving information about whether or not orange is in your cognitive space. Um, mm. then other things that are not orange, but relate to orange, particularly in the case of a tiger, um, would, can then be, uh, linked, if you like. And, and the, if you asked where are they linked, I would say they're linked at the top of the neuron. The, the, the top of the neuron can get other, other things that tend to happen when, when orange is in your cognitive space. If you ever think about tigers, then you'll have learnt to associate stripes and, uh, and growls and movement and, and anything else that pertains to that. And, and I would expect to be finding that kind of information affects the top of the orange column in your brain. And, and then if we, if we now transfer that to, to higher cortical areas, it's still the same operation. So, so especially doing some complex decision, there'll be some output that is relates to the decision and the type of decision you're trying to make and so on. And there'll be other things that often occur during that decision that are not the decision itself that would, that would, you could call context that come to the top of that neuron. Is this a good time, do you think, to talk about consciousness and the dendritic integration theory? Because, you know, we're, we're talking about, you've used the word feature, right? Where each, um, that's what gets passed along. But then when we think of our experiences, um, coupling the features or the, the input with the context and then a feature is passed along. Uh, and that's happening at every hierarchical level. And as mm -hmm. we just said, there's mm -hmm. a big question mark about the top and how it's the wrong way to think about yeah. it. But one of the things that you guys found, have found, is that under anesthesia, uh, it's, it's decoupled. The, the pyramidal neuron, mm -hmm. uh, is decoupled. And when we're awake in a conscious state, it's coupled. So, however, if we're in a conscious state, you, the coupling would be, you know, all over the, the cortex, right? Everything is potentially at least coupled. So then I, you, you immediately think, well, how does this, well, maybe you can explain what the dendritic integration theory is. And then, uh, maybe we could discuss like how, how to wrap our heads around where, our experience arises, <laughs> essentially, you know, yeah, I know okay. that the, this is terrible. It's a podcast and we have to use language and yeah, language is no right, good. Right. <laughs> but I ought to be able to do this. Um, I'm glad you started with the, with the anesthesia because I think in a, in a way we, we, we don't, it's a very nascent theory of consciousness. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's more a theory of, of loss of consciousness at the moment. Um, and it's, it's giving us some, hopefully some information about, Consciousness and, and the sense in which we're proposing a theory of consciousness, not so much that we think we solve consciousness, but we're looking at <laughs> the lead, the other leading theories of consciousness and saying, how does this mechanism that we found that clearly is, is at least correlated to loss of consciousness, if not the mechanism for the loss of consciousness, how, what that actually informs us and, and how that relates to the, 
the leading theories of consciousness. So yes, it's as you say. The, if you if you record from the these the cell body of the or so close to the axon of of a layer five neuron in an awake, in this case mouse, and you you optogenetically uh, depolarize or, or excite the the top of the neuron, you see what we see under many situations in vitro where the 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 top signals to the bottom and causes it to burst fire, as I was saying before, and and uh, and and this is very clear to see. And then, if if you anesthetize the animal with with different kinds of anesthetics, uh, you find that it flatlines. That the although you continue to to excite the top because we're we're basically imposing that optogenetically. Uh, that's to say, we we express channel rhodopsin in the neurons and put light. Uh, specifically on the top of the neuron, then you under the anesthesia you get no effect at all um, in terms of cell firing of, of this neuron, and well th- that was for me astonishing in the first instance because I mean you might think well anesthetics are anyway subduing the network and so on and, and so mm-hmm. maybe you should mm-hmm. expect that but but this is a biophysical claim because we, we're taking single neurons and we're forcing depolarization at the top of the neuron. And we're saying that depolarization is not doing what it did just a minute ago. It's not getting to the bottom of the neuron. So it's a claim, a biophysical claim about the neurons. Of course, we do think that, that circuit elements are impinging on that neuron and, and preventing the, the coupling from the top to the bottom. But, but what it, what in that instant, what we could see is that well, after a few more experiments, maybe I should say, because, um, what, let me just uh, flesh that Always. out. It's completely yeah. the, 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 um, the, we also found that if you suppress the higher order thalamus that projects to that particular region that you're recording from, um, that that has the same effect on the coupling. That meaning if you shine light at the top of the neuron and you record from the bottom of the neuron at the same time that you're suppressing higher order thalamus, then it's also decoupled. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we found that, uh, so we knew from Murray Sherman's work and several others that, um, that the higher order thalamus, when it does project to the cortex, projects both to the top and to the middle of the cortex and that there's a lot of metabotropic, uh, receptor activation involved in about 50% of the work being done by the, by the thalamic inputs is through metabotropic receptors. And so, which nobody really knew how to interpret and, uh, we therefore just tried blocking the metabotropic receptors, in this case, both glutamate and cholinergic receptors. And both of blocking either of those receptors, um, had the same effect of, of decoupling the neuron. So information that you were, that you were impinging or, or in, um, imposing on the top of the neuron ceased to influence the bottom of the neuron. Um, and, and I, I suppose the, the upshot is that we, and, and I, I suppose I should also say that these are the neurons, or one of most, these neurons have a, a large input to higher order thalamus. And, and so there's a loop between these neurons, the higher order thalamus, and back again, um, in controlling the coupling of these neurons. And, and so if you would break that loop anywhere, what's, what we would, uh, claim now is that it's, it's actually, Taking away cortical feedback, because mm. that those things that come to the top of the neuron from other areas of the of the cortex 
and now have no influence because they get to the top of the neuron but have no influence on the bottom of the neuron from which the axon comes. So basically it's a handy switch, as I was saying in the beginning, for taking away all, in, in, in this case, ubiquitously across the whole cortex, all feedback. So once you've got to that point, then you could posit that that's possibly the mechanism for anesthesia. And our next... I hope we've got another, we've got now got a five year plan to, to see if we can prove that that's true. But, um, but on the other hand, we're already speculating that if, if that is the case, then, then you could, you could speculate that consciousness is in fact the reintegration of feedback via these neurons somehow and in, that engages the thalamocortical loop. Um, or at least I shouldn't say is, but, but requires. And, uh, and then, and then you can look at the different kinds of claims about what consciousness is in the major theories. And I think there are, there's basically, uh, well, three main genres, maybe four main genres. I think Anil Seth, who you interviewed recently, just had a, a, um, a review paper on, on the different categories mm-hmm. of, of consciousness. But one, one sort is these, the sort of interconnectivity type, um, theories of consciousness like, the integrated information theory by Tononi, or the global neuronal workspace theory by, by Jean-Jean and Dehen. Um, and these are theories that posit that there's, there's long-range interactions going on and, and that interconnectivity in some sense is the be-all and end-all of, of consciousness. And you get to a certain level of interaction which in Tononi's IIT theory would be described by a number with phi in, in the global neuronal workspace theory would be some threshold ignition point where, where you get now, uh, let's say, uh, an explosion of, of activity around the, the brain. Um, in this case, I think it's clear that either of those two Theories would be well explained, if you like, the mechanism would be well explained as being a decoupling of the pyramidal neurons because this would instantly uh, take away, either it would instantly lower fire or it would instantly bring you below the ignition point of the global neuronal workspace theory. Now, another class of theory is the higher order theories of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And and these, these are more... If I might say content driven in the sense that, that there's, you posit that there's some higher level process going on that, um, is responsible, let's say exists in, um, in cognitive space somehow that, that, uh, supervenes, if you like, on the, on the rest of the low level activity that's going on. Um, and, and it would, I think, be easy to posit that, that that's exactly what's embodied in feedback. Uh, that that if if it's going to be embodied anywhere, it's going to be in the in the kind of information that you generate, as opposed to the kind of information that you're receiving um, from from the rest of the world. Although the I think the in the the interesting claim going on here is that it's neither nor. It's it's the in the end perception or or what the cortex is actually doing is is comparing your to internally generated information with the external information, and it's not until those two things match in the correct way that you have mm. that you have a perception. And 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 I guess the if if it claims anything, dendritic information 
theory claims that you perceive nothing when you don't combine these things, and if you would decouple them, you would stop perception, and that would be that would be like being unconscious. What happens? Okay, so when when you're unconscious, they're decoupled. When you're conscious and you have content, they're coupled. What about when you're in a mindful meditative state? Oh, nice. <laughs> Or, or you could ask when you're dreaming, or, or, or sure. So um, uh, the and and we'd like to know the answer to all of these. So, so I can only speculate at this point. And and I, I guess the the other really close question would be what happens when when you when you take some kind of psychedelic drug and so on. Right. And and another related question would be what happens in in the various kinds of pathologies where where you see cognitive changes and so on. I think they all can be. You can think that's the, in a sense, the beauty of looking at the the cortex through these glasses. That let's just say through the dendritic integration theory glasses, you can now say, well, what will happen if we if we you've got basically two dials. You've got the uh, uh, what would you say the receptiveness or the activity state of the top of the neuron and the bottom of the neuron, and you can turn it up or down. Let's say so you've got um, You've got four degrees of freedom, if you like, or, or two two knobs that you can turn in both directions. And uh, you could imagine, for instance, that that when you're in a meditative state, that you're you're uh, you're you're turning down your receptiveness to the outside world and and turning up your your receptiveness to the inside world. That that you're you're basically um, or, or vice versa. It'd be the matter. opposite, right? And, yeah, if, if mindful, yeah. at least mindful. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert or anything, but you, you're turning off your internal world, and and it's like pure perception, right? Without judgment, right? Or without right. Yes, yes, yes. Right. I, I guess I at, at this point, I so I don't know the answer particularly, <laughs> and we haven't tested the answer. But but um, but I think that's the nice way of that simplifies the question enormously. What might um, turn out is that when when, for instance, you're doing something. Uh, like meditation, that it might be a particular part of you. You might be switching off your frontal regions and, and, uh, let's say turning down the, t yeah. the top on your frontal regions and turning up the, 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 the bottom on, on the sensory regions or who knows. Um, but there, there, there could be that kind of nuance to the question. But, but essentially it's still a much simpler question all of a sudden. And, and it seems tractable to me. First of all, mm -hmm. it's tractable because you could describe what you expect really easily. And secondly, it's tractable because we have the tools to explore this now. So with, with, at least in, at least in rodents, we can, we can now basically answer the question. We can use various different tools to, mm -hmm. to work out what's going on. In humans, this of course is more difficult, uh, because we, we, can't get we can't do the same kinds of sophisticated things like optogenetics and so on in in a human i still feel like there's there's a path to to getting to explaining this in humans i think it would start with with doing this in in mostly rodents but, but perhaps other animals and then uh looking for non-invasive ways to see the clues of of what you're seeing in in animals and then take these non-invasive approaches to in the human case, and we've started this in many different ways, and, and I think it, uh, it it looks promising to me at this point, albeit at the beginning of a long, long road to to get there. So, Matthew, I, this is kind of um, 
a pause or orthogonal, but we've just been talking about high level concepts like consciousness. And we may go into talk about the ideas about memory and learning in layer one and uh, kind of these big ideas. But um, this all started from recording the nitty gritty recordings in the dendrites, you know, of mm. pyramidal neurons. So, so, you know, sort of bottom up, right? And then you've extrapolated right. it to uh, the larger ideas. So I elicited a few guest questions and I want to make sure that mm -hmm. I, I play them for you. They're both uh, by the mm -hmm. same person here. So I'm going to play this question for you with that um, background that I just said, and then and then we'll uh, move on to other higher level topics. Hi, Matthew. This is Mac. Nice to see Paul getting a few more Australian accents on the podcast the way it should be. So one of the things that I really love and admire about your work, Matthew, is your ability to conduct really precise technical experiments at the micro scale, but then extrapolate the importance of those experiments and the outcomes of those experiments to a broader functional interpretation. And as someone who typically starts from the other end at the systems level and tries to peer down into the microcircuits, I'm curious whether you have any tips or tricks for people working on the macro scale that can make the results of our experiments more palatable and more profound to people like yourself who are working down at the microscopic level and trying to extrapolate out to the macroscopic. It's Mac Shine asking for tips and tricks. <laughs> well, thanks, Mac. Um, yeah, uh, great question. It's 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 so ironic to get that question because I'm normally thinking about the difficulty I'm having talking to people at at max level, which I also really admire, um, and and trying to convince them that they should care about the the low level features. And and I guess Mac is is asking the other way around. How would he get somebody at the low level like me to be interested in, in high level? Um, actually, that seems to be a theme of your podcast going through. I, I love the 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 interviews you did with John Krakauer and, and various people mm. like this who I think are are starting more or less where, where Max starts and, and they hate and, the uh, low level. Hate and, it. Right. They hate the low <laughs> level. Yes, right. <laughs> um and 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 it's so I'm I'm find myself defending in the other direction mm -hmm. um in, in that context. But if if you do want to get through if if you're in if you were a John Cracker of this world and you wanted to um to to interest somebody at the low level well i mean i i i listened to to his argument and and i'm totally convinced that you you definitely need to uh, imagine what the purpose of all of this is but but i know that a lot of a lot of people get lost in in the world in fact I, i'm i'm probably in one of those fields where when we get together in in our conferences you know conferences that are specifically about dendrites tend to Focus on such minutia that you, if you were a observer to such a conference, you would wonder why anybody would be worried in this, that, or the other. And, and it gets down to all sorts of details that are hard to, to know if they should matter at all. Um, and I, I think it's also true that a, a, a significant fraction of the people really don't care about whether or not it matters at these, these higher levels. Um, I, I guess that. I feel intrinsically, if if uh, if it wouldn't matter at the high levels, I wouldn't care about it at the mm -hmm. at the low level. So I'm not interested in just the properties of dendrites for their own sake. I, I, if if it doesn't matter at the high level, then I don't think so. But what I guess I'm arguing is that 
and, and, and this was in an opinion piece that, that came out recently, um, I'm arguing that as, as much as it's, it's important to ask the question, what is the, uh, what are the consequences, if you like, at the high level? I think it's, it's instructive. The, the low level is in fact instructive of the kinds of, it gives you a, a framework or a parameter to, to guess what's going on at the high level. So for instance, uh, when, when we look at the, 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 the question, well, we, we recently looked at memory, for instance, and we've, for me, a light came on when I saw that the, the memory structures tend to go to layer one of the cortex as they, one way or another, they feed back information, be it the hippocampus through the medial temporal lobe or the, um, or, uh, let's say the basal ganglia through higher order thalamic regions, uh, or the amygdala just going directly to, to, to layer one of the cortex. That for me, that I, I immediately say to myself, well, there must be a reason for that. And of course, with the, with the kind of goggles that I have on and looking at this in terms of hmm. the, the, uh, the cortical column and the, what the pyramidal neurons are doing for that, I'm asking, well, that I'm saying to myself, that must be influencing the top of the, pyramidal neuron and, and why would this be true and so on. Out of that pops the hypothesis that drove a whole, you know, five years of research, which is maybe the top layer of the cortex is, is, cares about memory, if you like, um, or, or needs to get signals that things need to be remembered. And if so, it would imply that the thing that you want to remember is context, um, mm-hmm. which Actually, the more you think about it, it makes perfect sense. In fact, when I was saying this to a psychologist, the psychologist said, we already knew that, you know, that yes, you, you remember context. That's to say, you, if I, if I tell you my phone number, you, you don't remember particular, you don't want to perceive the number six any different afterwards. If you have a six column or I don't know, you, 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 you want to associate it with me and, and, uh, and probably a telephone number is the worst example there. But in any case, the, the, if you want to remember something, you want to remember the the features of something and how they uh, and what they relate to. You're now in my tiger context because of the examples that you use, right? So <laughs> right, exactly, yes. And and so so, how would I get the, the uh, high level person to to interest the low level person? I, I would say that this has to manifest whatever your high level claim is has to manifest at the low level. And if your, if your low level is, is, if you're steadfastly going to ignore any possibility for this connection, then, then you will, you will constantly be in your own bubble, as it were, which I think actually a lot of neuroscience is. And, um, it's also, I think there are a lot of exceptions and a lot of them are, you tend to, I think, collect that kind of a, a mindset mm. for your podcast. So, I, I mean, I can think of notable exceptions of people who who really don't stay in their bubbles. See, people like um, Bujaki, for instance, who who doesn't want to be trapped in, in in that bubble. But amongst, I think, being in where I come from, at in the level we we look at the brain, I'm very used to that milieu where. where Mm. Where it seems really important to talk about, you know, what what subtype of what channel is in which in which oblique dendrite and so on, which which makes yeah. the uh, the ilk that you were just describing make makes their eyes roll, right? But the, l- let me let <laughs> right. me read something. You, you mentioned the um, review that you wrote, and it's um, are dendrites conceptually useful? Where you make these kinds of arguments, 
So I'll, I'll just read a mm. quick quote from that because it um, has to do with what we're talking about. There is every reason to suspect that better descriptions of sophisticated single cell computation will lead to better descriptions at the network level, blurring the distinction between Mars algorithmic and implementation levels. So people, you mentioned John Krakauer, he's, he's one example, right, who don't um, care about <laughs> the single neuron level, let alone dendrites, right? Mm. That's even mm. worse. Mm. Uh, and mm. be- because the argument is, we have to stop looking at how these neurons are connected uh, as a like box and arrow kinds of diagrams because they're not telling us anything about the higher level cognitive functions, essentially. Mm. Mm. Are you fighting an uphill battle uh, in this current, not amongst your uh, low level dendrite friends, <laughs> low level friends, uh, but <laughs> just in the neuroscience world uh, at large, do, do you, uh, have you, have you found yourself fighting an uphill battle as a sort of bottom up? Uh, experimentalist? Yes, I think um, the, it's always very difficult to, to take somebody who hasn't considered these problems and, and even get them to pay attention, let alone, let alone uh, take it seriously. And I guess the claim I'm making in the quote that you, you just read is that it's not just the claim that there has to be a through line from, from the implementation to, to the algorithm to the computation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that the, the implementation is very suggestive of what types of algorithms and eventually what types of computations are being carried out. And, and that sounds like an unreasonable claim. I'm sure to the John Grackhouse of this world that, that doesn't seem plausible. But, um, but I think that what we've just been going over is a case in point. I, I think there are things that we're suggesting, such as, for instance, perhaps the, the top of the cortex is the place where you should look for semantic memory that you can only come to by a synthesis of the of this bottom up approach with a with a, an eye to the top down types of questions um, and in the end it i think is really instructive to somebody from a psycho, psychological point of view and somebody who who wants to understand Let's say computation level in Mars Mars terminology, right. um, but but uh, in 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 terms of getting back to looking looking at high level features of cognitive features of the way the brain operates, it not only I think suggests uh, how it operates, but why it operates that way. It it makes a lot of sense. I think that if you want to uh, remember the way things are associated or the context for things then you would like to separate that. It would be really useful if you could separate that as a compartment to handle it separately and then in, reintegrate it into the, the larger cognitive domain. And, and hey, presto, that's what, that's what the low level is telling you is, is happening. And, and all of a sudden it, it's giving you clues about how you should talk about the, at the high level about what's going on. And, and it also tells you why this is semantic information, by the way. Um, th- this is essentially semantic. It is a really difficult notion, you know, meaning or, or, or um, you know, how, how, how do we describe this? In the end, it tells you if, if this is the right way to look at it, then semantic means nothing other than, than the distillation of context. And, and so if you can distill the context of something, then you know the meaning of it. And, and, and yes, that's a bold thing to claim, but I'm claiming it on the, on the basis of the low level description. And I'm, I'm saying that, 
that it appears that way from the low-level description. So let's 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 posit it as a hypothesis at the high level. Well, the, so I guess a a pro computation level um, perspective would say that's fine, but you didn't start with dendrites. Um, you actually had memory in mind, a high level concept, right? A computation in mind to then uh, make a hypothesis about what the dendrites might be doing. So uh, to me, it seems silly to say we need to go this way or that way because we're we're all working at all levels. It's essentially not, well, not me since I'm yeah, retired. I, but. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. That's exactly right. That that we, we should this should not be a fight between which which direction to think of things. This should be a a call to arms for people at all levels to to start talking to each other and to see how this all fits together. And I think that's that's what I admire a lot in Max Shine's work because he's doing that, and there are very very few people who who do that, and and a lot of people who are resisting it. <laughs> Since I mentioned that paper and, and read a quote, um, are dendrites conceptually useful? How how has it been received? Have you gotten uh, feedback, positive or and or negative? Did it do its job? I, it's too early to say now. It's only it's only a few weeks since it came right. out. I've not had any any really negative feedback, but um, maybe it's maybe it's still arriving. In the, uh, um, I, I do kind of feel um, I, I'm a little bit conflicted by this paper because it's a little bit polemic, at least for for what I'm used to saying. I'm usually a little bit more tentative about uh, saying, it, but it, what it's it's trying to say essentially that there that there may be things that. Uh, we've yet to understand about the way the brain operates that can only be uh, approached if we would if we would include some of the the possibilities that we could learn from dendrites and and the analogy I have actually which is in this paper I, I look at the the way I, I contrast the revolution in neural nets with with a normal digital computer and I, I think it's fair to say that that neural networks are conceptually in advance for neuroscience. Mm-hmm. No, no matter whether you think they're the be-all and end-all, but certainly deep neural networks are doing a lot of work at the moment in terms of our understanding of how neural, of how networks might work. And I think this is on a conceptual level. And I think it's on a conceptual level in the sense that we we run these, these uh, artificial neural networks on digital computers, which are right. nothing other than Turing machines. So, so you could, so, because maybe I should add that the, often the, the throwback that you get as a dendritic researcher is, well, you know that it's not really necessary to consider these dendrites as, as for neural networks, because we can always build a more complex neural network that right. includes all the properties of your dendrites. And, and so it's not relevant, is it? And, and, and we'll be able to solve everything with point neurons because if we needed something that the dendrites do, we would add a few new point neurons. A few to, new to, points. Yeah. Yep. Yes, right. Um, and, and I'm, I'm just saying, well, you could have said that about neural networks in the first place. You could have said, look, I don't need a neural network to, to solve this because all I need is a few more states and a longer, and a, a longer ticker tape to have, to have more numbers on it. See, it's, it's just a Turing machine after all. And I can prove it because I can run it on this digital computer. And, and you, 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 you'd have in that instant lost all of the power of having collapsed what I think is, uh, the, the real insight of a neural network is that you can do this fantastic statistical learning with basically three, three facts. If you, if you have a learning rule and you, you know the, the cost function of this and, and, and you have basically a particular 
architecture of uh, the, you know you've figured out your your connectivity that with those armed with those facts you can uh, and and, and uh, a, a method for for um, communicating the the de deviation from from the goal that you want to uh, to the uh, to all of the connections you're done and and you you can you can do you can beat the world's best chess player with these three principles essentially with a few tweaks and so obviously i think that's a conceptual advance and it doesn't it's no for me i, I it's absolutely not an argument against this that you can run it on a digital computer I, I, i'm saying so so what you know that it's conceptual advance so the argument would be we haven't spent enough time looking at the the kinds of insights you might have over and above these these uh, these things we now know about or this this framework of looking at um, uh, learning with a neural network we, we haven't looked at dendrites closely enough to know whether or not there are more principles on those levels and and the first principle I would go for actually is the the separation and reintegration of two different fundamental streams of categorically different streams of information and and mess around with those kinds of principles but i'm not claiming that that is the be all and end all i'm just saying that that seems useful intuitively to me at the moment and and you'd want to be really sure before you just threw away what biology has spent hundreds of millions of years um yeah. playing around with and 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 just say well that's irrelevant i, I think i'll stick with point neurons that seems to me to be an incredibly stupid thing to do. <laughs> yeah, Scott, okay, I like that you said stupid. I, I recently had <laughs> Elena Galea on um, talking about astrocytes, you know, for example, right? Yes. Th thinking about things that are not neurons in the brain. Um, and, yeah, of course, there are yeah. neuromodulators, and I've had people on to discuss those. But it's, it just seems the more I think about it, the more I learn um, about some of the lower-level things that were carved through evolution – the sillier it seems that uh, the a deep learning world is based on these point neurons, right? That are mm -hmm. <laughs> essentially from the fifties, forties, and you know earlier. Is by by looking at the the brain and deciding that neurons from the single neuron doctrine, et cetera, were the end all. Uh, that's where yeah. artificial intelligence or the modern version of it, the birth of deep learning, et cetera. That's where it all started, and it just seems silly that it's so archaic, um, based on the technology that we had on, at the time and our experimental uh, capabilities based on those technologies. So I'm with you that it, it seems uh, useful to at least try out uh, what evolution has suggested to us. Right. So, so I, I guess I want to just reiterate the claim that I'm making. It's not that I imagine in the end that you're going to need a sophisticated real description of dendrites right. um and and that that it, unless you had a really complex machine with dendrites you wouldn't get <laughs> the full functioning brain uh, i'm claiming that there are insights that you can get from dendrites um and until you understood what they're really doing then you'll then you'll miss these insights in the same way that if all you had was a state finite state machine and a ticker tape you're probably never going to stumble across the idea of a neural network the that, that you, you'll probably, if you only have neural networks with point neurons, you're probably not going to stumble across some of the insights that you can see with these higher concepts, whatever they may be. And, mm -hmm. and I guess to the John Krakows of this world, I would say, you know, just that, that's uh, an example of, 
let's say going, I don't, that's where I, I'm trying to say we, we may be confusing implementation with algorithmic. I'm not quite sure how I would describe uh, the, the point neural network in terms of where it fits oh. on the, on the Mars level of, of, of description. But, but I think it's clear that it blurs that description because you can, you can get from a neural network now to beating a chess player and, <laughs> and, uh, and all the other face recognition and God knows what um, will come around the corner next. Um, that, that, that there are insights that we're getting from that that are crossing these boundaries, as Ma would put them. They're not so simple to, to see the line between, between what, what, in fact, in a way, this is perhaps more the problem that we're facing because when you sit down and, you know, when you want to beat the world's best chess player and you want to improve your network, now comes the rub, actually, because it's, it, you can, you can train it on, on 100 million chess games and it's going to be fantastic. But if you want to improve it past that, you, you suddenly realize you don't understand how this neural network in front of you is solving the problem. Mm. Or at least in the sense that you, you don't understand it in the sense that you don't know how to tweak it to improve it past, past giving it more information and, uh, and training it more. But I think that's where, that's where dendrites are likely to come in and be useful because clearly the, uh, what I think uh, this is a, a this is a hypothesis or a, or a wild claim, if you like, um, that uh, the uh, uh, that neural networks, point neural networks, deep neural networks are autistic savants. These are machines that can collect information and synthesize that close to perfectly, such that you get close to the best statistical description of the of the input output function that you're you're seeking, um, and in that sense. You can't do better, and and what you're missing is context. What you're missing is a way to uh, when when we're talking about sort of general AI that that uh, that you're missing insights in a in a directed way that um, that allows you to do what what is difficult for autistic savants to put some meaning to it all. So. You might be able to count how many matchsticks fell on the floor, but you've no idea what you're going to do with this information, um, and and you can't you can't put it in other contexts that you haven't been trained to to do, and so on. And, and what we clearly can do with with one or two presentations of the data, humans in particular, but I think mammals in general can generalize from situations and and, and make conclusions that are startling with comparison. So the and and at the moment we are all super impressed by something that is, that as we would be, I think, if you if you if you meet a uh, an autistic savant, then you're also super impressed by what they can do. And you and I think your first impression is, I wish I could do that. <laughs> but I, I think it, I think it comes at a cost. And I think the the low level implementation is telling you why it comes at a cost. It's because if you've got if you're, let's say that you could train this whole network in a feedforward sense by just using the bottom of every neuron. And, and now you would be putatively perfect in, or at least as good as possible in uh, uh, framing problems. And, but if you want to have context, it comes to the other end of the neuron and, and is reintegrated into the neuron. There's only one output from the neuron. So essentially the, the uh, the top down signal is adulterating your perfect statistical um, calculation, mm. and you can't have it both. You you can't be perfect 
in your statistical analysis of something and have your context at the same time. And, and so you're going to have to put up with that. And my claim would be that from an evolutionary point of view, you want to be something like the, the six-layer cortex and, and, and a mammal that is imperfect because from an evolutionary point of view, every now and again you're going to come across life-threatening situations where you're going to have to think laterally and use all your knowledge to avoid it. And I think we come across them actually not just every now and again but all the time, particularly, say, you're driving a car and uh, and today somebody dropped their hat in the in the road or or, uh, or there's some strange obstacle in front of you um and the and let's say the an automatically driving car would just say well that's the first time i've seen that i'll i'll, I'll add that to my database and run over the little kid or whatever it is um and and you say you say no this is strange i i i don't not seen this before and i i don't know how to handle it but i can see that something's different and i and now i can work out all of a sudden that the, all of these other things pertain to the problem and uh, and although you've not seen it before you can you can deal with that um i, I should have framed this in terms of the the driver dying there's you could you could easily frame this in terms of and 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 Children, you're, you're you're talking about children dying. Nice. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. But my main point is that I, you would be coming across situations throughout life where, if you didn't have this kind of ability to think on your feet and interpret it, you're going to die. And and let's suppose let's suppose I told you that um, that this autonomous vehicle was so good that in ten years of driving, it'll be a hundred times better than you are at driving the car. But once in 10 years, it'll drive into a truck. You know, you don't get into that car because this, this is a, you're dead, you're going to die in the next 10 years and you don't want to die in the next 10 years. You want to survive it, even if that means making hundreds of little errors that you're, that, that, that uh, are not, not optimal. You would prefer to be ready for the, for the divergence that is hard to predict and, and, and you can't learn statistically. So that's what I'm guessing is the reason why you need this kind of general intelligence in, from an evolutionary point of view. I had the thought, and, and you can um, tell me why this is a ridiculous thought, but you know, thinking about uh, our mammalian cortex and, well, our human cortex relative to other mammals, uh, it is thicker, and these, um, you know, there are descriptions of these layer 5 pyramidal neurons, for example, have longer um, apical dendrites. They're, they're more decoupled, essentially. And I was trying to think, well, you know, under your, uh, like the dendrite hypothesis, why would that be? And I actually mm -hmm. thought maybe one evolutionary advantage, and, and sorry, you know, you talking about the savant made me think of, the, of this, is to actually prevent us from, well, it, it, you said it for me, from like being a savant. It's actually to mm. prevent us from learning too well so that we have the capacity uh, in those situations um, over a mouse, let's say, or in this case, a savant. Uh, mm. I guess I'm just mm. repeating what you said, but I, I thought of it in in terms of um, reducing what we're learning in given situations, even though we have a much higher to allow us to have a higher capacity to learn when we need to learn. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I really like that. I hadn't actually thought of that, but that's really nice. So, I'd, <laughs> I, in other words, the, the the thickness of the human cortex ha would have a tendency to be be able to be savant-like because it's more decoupled. Is what you're saying? Well, the thickness would would prevent savantness, right? It, it would because you wouldn't just learn everything 
uh, without the imperfection, without the feedback, right? The, the feedback in some sense is gating your ability to become a savant is what you actually, you said, right. but now I'm just, you know, it was yes, just, a, that's right. It's what, it, but, 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 it, but, but I, the reason I extrapolated to that from what you said was that the, the, the thing, actually the first findings in vitro from human neurons is that they're less coupled than, than the rodent neurons. And, and that would seem counterintuitive at first. And that's and what I'm I, saying is like to, to prevent the learning essentially. Right. And, and, but then, but then you would need some way for, to reintegrate that. So, and, and, and I think that I'm, I'm, I'm betting that the latest thing that we saw under anesthesia is giving us the answer here that, mm. that essentially different kinds of neuromodulation affect the coupling. And I'm betting that if you took a human neuron with, in a, in a situation that's, that's more sophisticated than the in vitro situation where there's no neuromodulation, that you've got all sorts of ways to reintegrate the tuft. And as you say now, you could be doing learning with and without it. And, and, and I suppose that, that, I guess where I was going was saying that also, first time, <laughs> I didn't realize you weren't saying it, <laughs> now, so we can, we can own this idea together that, that, uh, that, um, you, you would also in principle have the advantage of being able to decouple it under certain situations. So right. if you did want to just, if you just wanted the statistical part of this, if you just wanted to, let's say, ram a lot of information in, and you could, you, in principle, I don't know exactly whether it happens or how you would do it, but in principle, if you've got a mechanism to, to decouple the top from the bottom and you were under control of that, you could, for, for whatever time it takes, decouple it. And maybe that is what it means to really focus on throwing a football or something. That, maybe that's that what Ritalin does you, or something. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then, then you, for, then you could putatively, uh, work up the, the statistical information and then, and then reintegrate the, the context. I guess that the way I, we had thought that this happens is, is in two stages. Um, but it's, it's just a, um, at this point, we, we're, I guess, so this is, this is really speculative, but, um, but one way you could imagine is what the critical period is during the, the development of a mammal. Right. Is a period where you are decoupled. By the way, the, um, at least in a rodent, during the, the days between, uh, so when you're born up until just after weaning, that's a few weeks, um, so three or four weeks, you don't have a calcium spike and you don't have, mm. you don't have this apical, um, non-linearity. And then it starts to kick in at around about four weeks and, and then up to about eight to, to 12 weeks, it's really fully developing. And then you have really large plateau potentials. But so you could, and, and that corresponds to, uh, an early phase where there's a critical window where, where you're learning just the the features of your environment, the statistical regularities, right? And 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 you basically shut down the top of the of the neurons while you learn the statistical regularities. Now you've got the the features in place in your cortex, and you're grounded in the world, and all your all your columns are grounded. And now you can start putting them together, associating them to each other. And I guess that I was positing that that's when the the critical window ends and you stop being so good at learning statistical. And that would explain, for instance, why it's difficult to learn a new accent 
or instrument you know a past yeah. yes or instrument if you haven't got those those that grounding with the world up to that point that gets slowed down deliberately because now you don't want to be bothered with with that um but but as i say why not why not have a maybe you need ritalin and 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 you prevent feedback or something you could in any case you could imagine that that again this is a this is a handy conceptual tool for trying to understand the link between the implementation and these large scale concepts of, mm. of in this case learning statistical information versus um, contextual in- information so whichever way you look at it i think it's so it might be wrong but if it's wrong at least you've got a framework for for talking about it and and testing it mm. and and uh, for me that's that's worth something <laughs> that, that gives you a, a, a way to treat this what otherwise seems like an intractable mess of possibilities. So, so I've heard you um, in your talks, and this is going back to artificial neural networks now, um, talk about how we don't need to model dendrites, and you've, you've just been talking about that uh, as well. We don't, you know, we don't need to model all the exact details of dendrites uh, to create mm-hmm. a useful uh, artificial intelligence, for instance that instead we can extract the correct principles uh, that the dendrites, just like we've been talking about, how much detail do you need to build in it? Are there, are there lower level things that you think uh, are dendrites the lowest level that we need to consider? Or are there principles that we can extract looking at lower level things like, I don't know, channels, right? Ion channels it's, or, or whatever. I don't want to plant a seed in your head. But are dendrites the bottom level? Um, I, I don't know the answer, and and I mean when we when we're talking specifically about dendrites, there's there's levels also yes, in dendrites. Course, right. So you could be talking about spine heads or or little right. branches or 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 whole arborizations, so and so on. And, and it's uh, this is a well known thing, actually. Um, I don't know if you've talked with Mike Heuser before, but but he Mm-mm. he and Bartlett Mel have a, a a really good paper. It's now about two decades old, asking exactly this question: whether or not, um, what what level is is appropriate? And it wasn't clear then. I don't think it's clear now. And and uh, I mean, I've, I've got my favorite intuitions, but I don't think you're asking that. I, I think the, the the larger question is: how would you know? And and what's the principle for 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 deriving this? And you have to take a walk with your wife, and it has to come to you in a flash. <laughs> Exactly. No. I, well, yes. Actually, if there's one principle to come out of that, you need a really naive person to to say, "Well, wait a minute," and and not to stop asking you to keep on coming back to something you thought was obvious, and 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 keep on having to explain why why you think it's obvious. And and actually, my experience is trying to explain to somebody a really a really persistent naive person why something is obvious <laughs> so marry a naive <laughs> person is what you're saying <laughs> something like that but but actually i think in the end that that's why i think teaching is actually really useful too to right. students because yeah. often they're asking you naive questions and and then you find yourself actually i don't really know the answer i thought i knew the answer to that but actually and and very often you realize that even the student doesn't realize what they're asking <laughs> it's not it's not necessary that the naive person it gets the has the insight that you're having in that moment for you to suddenly realize that you don't really understand that and and I wouldn't claim that anything that I've said now is categorically true it seems 
Well, the good thing, the good news, I think, is that if you start with this mindset that there's something to be learnt from, from let's say bottom-up descriptions, that then you can always test it. Well, you can mostly test it. <laughs> You've always got a, a at least a conceptual way to test something, and and that's that's worth gold dust, I think, in in a in a scientific context, because if you're starting from the really high level ones, you may or may not be able to test a high level theory, particularly if it's very if you are on the wrong track, then it's going to be very difficult to get any proof at all that 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 it'd be hard to. To get in there and 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 actually test it, from, but so that, I think that's that's worth a lot. But the the bad news is that it's it's hard to stumble across the high level concepts that way, and so that's why I think you were right before. Everyone should be talking to each other, and uh, and uh, we shouldn't be doing one or the other. Okay, Matthew. Speaking of naivete and um, relying on our assumptions and questioning our assumptions. Let's get to the action potential and consciousness uh, thought experiment piece. Do action potentials cause consciousness? This really um, challenges our assumptions about what's important and um, and the primacy again of um, action potentials and you know, I guess somatocentric uh, thinking in in a sense. Would you like to explain the uh, the thought experiment and maybe sure, high level, sure. and then I also then I have a question from Max Shine, and then we can uh, discuss more. Just before I the caveat on 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 the description of this is that the um, that you hate neurons, you hate the, cell the, bodies the, the, and action no, potentials. <laughs> well, first of all, first of all, the, the 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 question as stated, as you put it, is supposed to be pro- provocative. Yes, um, and and so to be even more provocative, I think I would say. Um, do, does brain activity cause consciousness? And, okay. and I, I guess I would be, I would be hoping that, that my interlocutor like you would be, uh, would be, would have the spontaneous response, of course. Of course. So that's what, in a, yeah. in a sense that, <laughs> thank you, that, <laughs> that, that, that's where the starting point should be. But because then we, the, the thought experiment starts and I, and, and I, I should, First of all, um, say that, that this was put forward in, in our philosophy club in our lab by a really fabulous um, uh, now senior postdoc, Albert Giddon, um, who proposed this one day, and, and and it sounded so similar to what I'd heard in, in other kinds of contexts um, that at first I thought that it wasn't new, but there's, there's something really important about it. I, and more recently I found that there are a few other people who've... who've hmm. Have either said similar things or, or the same things even. Um, but here it is. The, so imagine that you, first of all, you, you take a, um, a subject who, and, and you, sh- you give them some experience. So I think it's easy to do this with, let's say, a movie. So you get them to watch five minutes of a movie. Um, and while they do this, you use some modern technology um, where you record from every neuron in the brain. So future technology. Some future technology, <laughs> right? Um, what we'd like to, if you go to some conferences, what, what you'd like to believe we're closing in on, right, but right. probably <laughs> we're still a long, long away from. Um, in any case, so you record from every neuron. So you know how every neuron fired during the movie at every instant. And, and you can, just for the sake of this thought experiment, record from retinal neurons and, uh, and also any, any neurons in your spinal cord and, and so on. So that, you know, the whole deal. 
Um, but but in principle, we're talking about what you were thinking when when you saw the movie, and and the experience you had when you saw the movie. Um, okay, and now you imagine that you had a device to to replay that uh, that to the to the person. Um, and actually, although this to some people this sounds really really futuristic, and that's not futuristic. It's futuristic is the number of neurons you can do at the same time. Right. But but getting one neuron to repeat the exact activity in the form of action potentials is not even hard. That all you need is a really good amplifier and uh, and a good recording of the initial conditions, and you can you can do what's called dynamic clamp on the neuron and. And literally create the same voltage at that point where the neuron is, which is unfortunately, as I say, typically at the cell body. But nevertheless, um, you can make the cell body do exactly what it did before. Um, and since that is actually a nexus point, because most of the d- dendrites are feeding into that point, and that's just before the axon, that's going to have a, a pretty. Uh, that's going to really dictate what the output I- along the axon is of that neuron. If you can absolutely recreate, and not only that, but uh, if you do a dynamic clamp in a, in a continuous way over over the whole period of this movie, it won't just dictate what that what that cell body should do uh, when it when it fires an action potential, but every other part. So every subthreshold deviation from that as well. So in other words, the the cumulative effect of all the inputs as seen at the cell body you can recreate with this with this um, so called dynamic clamp. And now, okay, it's futuristic, but Let's say you now do this at every neuron in the brain. The question is, if having just seen a movie and somebody recorded all your action potentials, if they replayed all the action potentials very faithfully at every neuron in your brain, would you have the experience of seeing the movie again? And and do you ever? Do you well? Can I challenge you with that? <laughs> well, because I, I've I've kind of vacillated, so. Um, <laughs> I want to say sort of, <laughs> because I, I don't, mm-hmm. it's not a, to, to me, it, it's, there are questions, right? Because, well, I've ended up on no, but I, but I think that it's because uh, I've come to think of, let's say, our subjective experience as not being due solely to spiking activity. Um, so I was already kind of a no on this, but I, I definitely used to would have said yes. Uh, okay. I'm very pro-spiking. Okay, let's just take your used to um, persona mm-hmm. because there's a couple more steps. Um, so, so if you would say yes, of course. I, wait, wait. Well, what would you say? I, I would say what you just said. Actually, I'm, okay. I'm, a, I'm, I'm agnostic, and I think I would jump off the train at the very first step okay. here and say no. no. But, um, but I'm, I'm very conflicted. I don't know the answer. I, I, so, and it's, it's, it's for me. This is torturous. But. Um, <laughs> But the next, I think a lot of people would say, of course, you know, Penfield used to stimulate the brain and you had experiences. So if, if you made the neurons fire, right. you just have the experience that, that that gives you. Um, and really important to this thought experiment is that although we're, so we're not controlling everything else that's going on, including the glial cells and the, and the neurotransmitter and, and so on and so forth, but we're not, we're not interfering with it either. So there's no reason to, not to posit that when the action potential goes down the axon, it won't lead to the same release of transmitter and so on at at the other end. Of course, that's a stochastic thing, and, and maybe that's important and so on. Yeah, that's a homeostasis and all sorts of things. Yeah, but 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 on the other hand, if let's suppose homeostasis was coming in, your your 
any, at every subsequent instant in this, you're also making the neurons do what they're going to do. So, so you're never going to know what homeostatic changes actually occurred. Uh, to yeah, I, I meant in the astrocytes and glial and all the other parts of the brain, yes. right? In the yeah, right, yeah. right. Okay, I I I, I concede that. Um, if if you wanted, you could you could <laughs> extrapolate this this uh, thought experiment to clamping everything, but that this seems too okay. unnatural for the timing. So so let, let's let's just stay let's where step we are. Through, Next yeah, step is, again, and and then because yeah. I need to play this before we you answer it already. <laughs> uh, okay, all right. So so the next step is um, what would happen if you now. Um, Blocked all the uh, sodium channels, so you blocked all the all the chance for the action potentials to propagate down axons. But nevertheless, you make every neuron fire the way it was doing. So, if you got to this point, I think you should be saying something like, "Well, it didn't matter before whether or not the action potential influenced the next neuron because my electrode is telling the next neuron what to do, not not the action potential from the previous neurons." So, in principle, those connections are now the, the the action potentials that are going down the axons are irrelevant because what makes an action potential is no longer the the influence from the. So, so then you, but but nevertheless, you would ask, you know, would would that cause you to be unconscious? And and then the next step would be blocking neurotransmitter, and you, so you could put in. Let's say drugs that that blocked the receptors, or we did it in a sophisticated way for for um, in the thought experiment with the optogenetics and so on, just so that you could get around some <laughs> of the, the tricky problems. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's not so much as believable. Actually, it's it's it gets a little bit more fantastic that way. But but mm-hmm. I think it, it it avoided some of the uh, obvious um, the obvious complaints somebody might have on a on a sort of philosophical level. Let's say um, could do it more cleanly. Let's say than just cut out um, just transmission. Um, and and then the next step in the argument is what if you take each of the neurons, or first of all, what if you make an incision in the brain and you cut one part of the brain from another, but you're still clamping every neuron. So essentially the information is getting around the brain in the sense that you're you're imposing it just like it would have happened in the original brain, but that they're physically not connected anymore, but they weren't connected anyway um, with tra- due to your blocking of neurotransmission. So why should that matter? And then the last step is to is to take the every neuron in the in the brain to a petri dish, spread it around the world, have different neuros researchers in their different laboratories replay at their neuron what they had to do, and and then some set of neurons that used to be your brain. Does exactly what it did before, and I think by most most people at this point are starting to object. They can't imagine that, that would be conscious. Not panpsychists, though, probably, right? They, right, <laughs> right. And and so so if and then you ask yourself, well, if if you decided that at some point in this set of steps you went from being conscious to unconscious, you have to say where and why. Yeah. And uh, so that's where we get to, and then that's very challenging, I think, because now you have to. You have to be, you have to have a, I think a more, first of all, you have to have some better reason for, for explanation or what, let's say imagination for what, what would make you conscious. But also, and, and this is where I think it's an important thought experiment is that whereas, say, the Chinese room does something like this and, and various other ways of looking at, uh, what computation does and, and, and different ways to simulate what the brain does, uh, are, are good thought experiments. Very often, and actually John Searle, the, the originator of the Chinese argument, I think does this, 
when challenged, he says, well, I know I'm conscious, so there must be something about wetware that, that makes you conscious. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's like a, the, the last retreat. I don't know why I'm conscious, but I know that I am conscious, and I know that I'm I'm a set of neurons. So it must be something special about a set of neurons. And... And, and basically, this is saying that's you can't escape because it's still your neurons doing this. In fact, in the in the sort of in the most idealistic way of stating this, you're in the first step when you replay all this activity. You can posit that all your neurons did exactly what they did before, and and that there's that the, and and if you want to say, well, there's no, they didn't. There's there's this there or this there. You have to now say why that should be the seed of consciousness. So, so I think I'm just saying that you can no longer retreat to saying, well, there's something special about the way you framed this and, and actually, but I still, I still retreat to, yes, brain activity causes consciousness. Um, right. because you're being asked, why does brain activity cause consciousness? And, and that's the, that's what I was going to say is the, the frustrating part of this, because I feel comfortable, I guess, like you jumping off at the beginning, but then I cannot articulate why. Right. So, which is the important part. What else then? Yeah. Why would it be? Yeah. Et right. cetera. Right. Okay. I'm going to play this uh, question from Mac, and I'm not sure whether you want to answer or, or what you'll think of it. So, uh, all right. Okay. Here, I'll play it. Hi, Matthew. This is Mac. You, uh, Albert, and Jan recently had a quite thought provoking thought experiment. And in the spirit of, um, playfully manipulating thought experiments. I wonder if you have thought about some of the other aspects of this thought experiment. And I was imagining a situation, as someone who doesn't do a lot of cellular neuroscience myself, that some of the patch clamping could go awry. And I started wondering just how much of that patch clamping could become impaired or could be inaccurate for an individual to have that same conscious experience. In other words, how robust do you think our conscious awareness of an individual moment is to individual variation in the firing or the uh, activity patterns, the calcium dynamics of the cells distributed around our brain. Okay. Oh, thanks, Mac. I love that question. Um, and that, I think you were, you, I don't know if you were being triggered by that, but the, that was sort of what you were just alluding to before, I think, that that the action potential that causes release is is a very stochastic process. And and so that's one, one form of things you're not under control of in this thought experiment. Um, and, but I think I like the question because it's framing something in a way that I've been sort of playing around with. I love to listen to Dan Dennett and his, his kind of theories of, of consciousness that by and large, I, I find myself agreeing with him in a sort of mm. matter of fact way. But he also talks about free will. And that's another thing that I'd never linked free will and consciousness in particular before, but but I start to see that there's there's some link between these two topics, and you, and you know that there's there's famous famously there are lots of neuroscientists who think free will doesn't exist, but nevertheless you're conscious, and 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 I I one thing in particular that struck me about um, something Dan Dennett talks about, and I think he's actually talking, I forget the. Originator is it John Aston or some, somebody else was talking about it's it's the putt example where where a putter comes to the green mm. he's with his with his colleague he puts tries to putt the ball into the hole he says damn I could have got that when he misses the putt and and then there's this big 
philosophical um, article about wh- what do you mean by you could have got that? And do you mean that every if every particle in the universe was exactly like it was before, that this that you could have got it on one re- one reversal of, of time and not on the next reversal of time, um, which is effectively the same as saying, can you break the causal chain of the universe? Um, and, and, and if you can't, then maybe you're not, you don't have free will. And, and I, I think the same thing could apply to, that's one way of framing what consciousness is about, that, that essentially that, and, and it comes back, I think, to maybe to the dendrite theory, because essentially what, one way of framing what's going on with the architecture of the cortex is that, uh, in order to have any perception, you don't just receive information from the outside world. In fact, almost to a large approximation, it's the other way around. You, you make a guess about what the outside world is, is telling you, and you compare this to what the outside world actually tells you. And, and, and it's in that interaction that you have perception, that you, you, you have a sensation, let's say. And given that the, the neurons that are going to eventually come, well, let's say represent this, also project all the way down through your sensory space. They also go all the way, in some cases, all the way back to your sensory organs. Certainly in hearing, for instance, you're, mm. you're actually using your cortex to, in some way, to modify the outer hair cells and the gain of your ears and so on, and, uh, and you're affecting the input and so on. So, so you could imagine that that sensation that you're having of, of hearing and why it's different to vision is exactly because of the the question that you pose to the distal parts of your dendrites where you say, uh, is this the case? Do I get what I expect in this situation? And if you're expecting something auditory, you you actually not only have to expect an auditory type of s- sensation or, or, or effect in the feed-forward direction, but you have to, the, the, your your expectation will become output that will interfere with the whole loop of information coming from from your ears and so on. So you could, you could, that's a first pass way to explain why this view of the cortex is, encompasses why seeing red is different to hearing, hearing the middle C on the, on the piano, say. And now getting back to the, the variability, of course, um, this has to be, for you to, to perceive in, in this framework, it has to be that there's some that there's some way that you could be wrong, let's say, mm. that 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 or, or it, it, it's in the deviation from what you expect that you you actually make the the important perception that that the extent to which this is is or isn't what you expected is the extent to which you assess what you perceive and the extent to which in the end you have the experience. So the experience is all in the 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 noise, if you like, in this sense, not in the noise so much as uh, in stochasticity, but in the noise as in the deviation from hmm. from expectation, and and so that would be a way. I'm, I'm I don't feel confident enough to claim that. Now, I'm not a philosopher, so I, I suppose I I should farm that one out to people who more experienced than I am. But but I, I I say this for two reasons. One being the the, the this thought experiment, and and the other. This framework that I, anyway, the goggles that I have for seeing the, the cortex that, that's, that's maybe an escape route that, that you can frame all conscious experience in terms of this interface, which might actually be at a, 
in a sort of meta space, let's say not, not, uh, not in the nuts and bolts of what action potentials fired and so on, but, but in the, if, if there's, if this higher order, what should I call it? Uh, if this, um, yeah, okay, I'll say it higher order, um, question that you're asking of, of an ensemble of, of columns around the brain has meaning. It has meaning because First of all, you're grounded in the world, and there's the, you're asking questions of grounded, grounded columns. And second of all, because it can be that it's it doesn't have to be the case, and you're you're asking this question. And so, in a world where everything is just a repeat, you will never see any deviation, or never have any. So everything will mm. will be your simulation, and and therefore it won't be an experience anymore. And if it's not an experience, you won't be conscious of it. So <laughs> that that's the that's fantastic. But yeah. maybe I kind of feel like a, a philosopher <laughs> will catch me out somewhere in that loop. <laughs> but uh, but um, it feels. It, I guess I'm I'm positing it. I get to so this is this actually is a nice way to close the loop because you, you're asking you know, why would you how do I convince the John Krakauers to see from the bottom up? Mm. I, I'm saying that. I'm asking a really now high-level question, probably one that's probably more high-level than he wants to to go for, and but I'm nevertheless looking at the the implementation that I see and asking, well, is it at least plausible at the implementation level, given the, the, this broader perspective of why the implementation is the way it is, and I at least get I at least get a loop that's closable. Um, I, I agree that uh, one needs to look at this closer, but but if if I'm if the, so a that's I, I say I came to this with some inspiration from the implementation level, and b I claim that if if ever I'm on the right track, I've got some things to test here mm. that 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 is that is also from my point of view this is. An important statement to be able to make that this isn't just um, so I might well be wrong, but at least I've got the the way to check it, or at least uh, theoretical ways to check it. It's the conceptual ways to check it. Let's say hmm. let's hope that we get the uh, the appropriate devices going forward. So. Well, Matthew, it's it's time for us to close our loop. Um, and I still this is a long episode, and I still had plenty of things to ask you, but I I appreciate you letting me put your goggles on for a little while. And uh, I've really enjoyed um, reading uh, all your works and um, continued success. I know that you have a ton of experiments left ahead of you, uh, a lot yes, of yes. ideas to test. And it's in some sense only the beginning, right? Yes, yes. Uh, well, I guess it's never ending. And, never but ending. Uh, I mean, it's such, such fun that uh, that's probably a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, right. So yeah, we're looking forward to the next five years. Oh, yeah, you have your five-year plan. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Matthew. No, thank you. It's been great. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.